this uh, focus of our sermon series during this time is forgiveness, the appearance of forgiveness in the world with Jesus and the appearance of forgiveness in our lives. And uh, this morning we continue on in that series on forgiveness and our, our passage of scripture this morning comes from a uh, letter of Paul to the Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Hear God's word. Put on then, or clothe, yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we do pray that you would open your word to us this morning. Uh, may it speak fresh truths and to our lives where we're at, and that you would teach us how to forgive and teach us the meaning of forgiveness. And that uh, as we, we reflect during this season on forgiveness, Lord, that you would be uh, working that in all of our hearts, making us as uh, forgiving people that can live a forgiven life because we've been forgiven by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> have you heard of the Harvard Study of Adult Development? The Harvard Study of Devol Adult Development is the longest longitudinal study uh, scientific study of human happiness. Um, it began in 1938 after the Great Depression. A number of Harvard scientists started tracking the, the mental, uh, physical health of 268 sophomores in hopes of discovering uh, what makes for a happy, happy and healthy life. And the participants of the study uh, eventually was expanded beyond just, you know, uh, undergraduates to uh, include a cross-section of residents uh, throughout the Boston area. And uh, it also began to track the second generation of the children of those who were the original participants in the study. And now the study's been ongoing for about 80 years and has yielded many fascinating insights um, into human happiness and, and health. And recently there was a, a book published just a couple weeks ago by the two directors of, of the study called The Good Life. And they're trying, they sort of gather together what the great insight of the study is. What is it that makes for a happy life? And it's really quite simple. Relationships. <laughs> Relationships. That's, that's the conclusion that the difference between those who lived longer and happier lives and those who did not was the nurture and the maintenance of good relationships. In fact, um, you know, and this is not anything new, but they talk about that loneliness kills. Loneliness kills. It's far more dangerous to our overall health and obesity or smoking or alcoholism. Good, long-standing relationships are critical for our survival. That's the conclusion of the study. Now, most of you don't need a Harvard study to tell you that this is true, right? That relationships really matter in our lives, right? And we know this because we are created in God's image. And to be created in that God's image means we're built for relationship. God 
God is a relational being. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity, God has had fellowship and love in his own life. And when he created human beings, he created us in his image. And just recall that first scene where God creates the man in the garden first alone and then says it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates the woman from the side of the man. And when he draws them together, the man's first response is, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? There's, there's this sense of, of exalting, of wonder, of joy in the presence of another person. And now, we, we tend to just see that text as related to uh, marriage and, and couples and romance, but actually, that's actually true for all human relationships. We're built for love. We're created for love. If you want to think about your story and what, it, what your life is, it's a story of love. You're called to love. Um, and it's not just, you know, marriage and children, but, but all kinds of relationships with different kinds of levels of intimacy and, and varying levels of depth. Uh, in his book, um, The Forgiving Life, uh, Robert Enright, who is a professor at uh, UW-Madison, he's a professor of educational psychology. He's considered one of the foremost experts in forgiveness studies and actually has an institute called the Forgiveness Institute. And in his book, The Forgiving Life, I think he, he makes an argument that I think is right on point. And he actually is a Christian, um, although he does not write from a Christian perspective in his work. But he makes an argument that uh, for the necessity of forgiveness, that, that we need to forgive because all human beings are on a quest for love, that we all have a story of love, and that when unforgiveness um, comes into our life, what it does is it disrupts that story. It stops it in its tracks. And so learning to forgive is about learning to continue that story of love and keeping that story going. And, and again, this is very biblical. This is a very biblical understanding. And, and it relates not just to forgiveness of other people and our relationships in a horizontal sense, but our relationship with God. And, and, and this is so important because when our lives are overcome with unforgiveness towards one another, it doesn't just impact our relationships with one another. It re- impacts our relationship with God. There's no way to have deep unforgiveness and deep broken relationships in our life and not to have it affect our relationship with God. And that's why continually, and we have it in this verse, we're commanded to forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us, right? You, you, you simply cannot separate broken relationships in your life from your relationship with God. They impact one another, intermingled. Uh, over the past five years, especially, uh, as I've done um, many weddings and premarital counseling with couples that are engaged, I've come back to this text in Colossians with increasing frequency. And, and I talk with young couples about intimacy virtues. That's what I call them in this text, intimacy virtues. And one of the things I say to couples is, you are currently not a good enough person to stay married for a lifetime. You're currently not a good enough person to stay married for a lifetime. If you want to stay married for a lifetime, you're going to have to be, develop these intimacy virtues in your life. Why? Because the, the, the more intimate you become with another person, and you sustain that over the long haul, the more vulnerable you become, and the more we expose one another to all the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Because we're sinners, and it's only a matter of time before you get hurt, and you hurt the other person. 
So if you want to stay close, right, it's easy to, to feel close for, for a season of time, but if you want to sustain a lifetime of close intimacy, of growing depth and intimacy, you have to cultivate um, these intimacy virtues. Now, right in the middle of this list of virtues, we have forgiveness, right? Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, there is a difference between forgiveness and virtue. Forgiveness is not in, a, in the traditional sense or the technical sense of virtue. It's an action. It's an activity, right? Virtues, uh, the way we tend to think about virtues is they're, they're more like character dispositions. But forgiveness is more like an action. Uh, but there's a reason I think that Paul puts ver- forgiveness right in the middle of these intimacy virtues. And I, I'll call them also forgiveness virtues. Because in order to forgive, you have to, to, do, to forgive well, to have a forgiving life, you have to possess these virtues. You have to possess these virtues. One of the, the metaphors that I keep coming back to each week with you um, about forgiveness is that to forgive when there's been a real wrong is like trying to move your soul in the direction of love after it's been really hurt. It's like when you hurt your back, when you have a bulge disc, and you just simply can't, you can't bend in certain directions. And, and when we experience deep hurt from another person, and we have the experience of unforgiveness, it's like trying to move your soul in the direction of love, and it doesn't want to go there. But just in the same way that when you, when you have, you know, back pain or a back injury, you have to, it takes time, right? But you also need to you need to introduce some physical therapy, different kinds of exercises that help strengthen the muscles and sort of balance out your spine, right? It's the same with forgiveness, right? That, that the exor- Sometimes you can't get directly at it, but there's all these exercises that you can do, and that's what the virtues are, in a sense. They're practices, they're exercises. And so this morning I want to reflect with you on four of these virtues as sort of like moral exercises of the soul to get our souls moving in the direction of love again. And so we only have time for four. So I want to talk about compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. And again, I I want to draw your attention back to our text. What does Paul says at the end? He says, and then put on love, because love binds them all together, right? See, again, this is the the whole story is about love. And so and, and um to exercise these virtues in our life is what it means to love in a very practical sense one another. So the first virtue that Paul talks about is compassion. Now, the, the literal translation of the Greek word, or the Greek word there is uh, splagkanon. <laughs> it's a lovely word, splagkanon. And it's, it literally means bowels of mercy. And the word heart is actually not there in the Greek, kardeia. Um, but the translators are, tr- you know, trying to help us understand the, this, this, this very, uh, this word has a lot of image of like the bowels, right? The gut, the spleen, the belly. In the Hebrew imagination, a person feels with the gut, with the belly. They don't feel with their heart, right? In our culture, we tend to think of the heart as the organ of, of feeling and emotion. Um, but in reality, too, physiologically speaking, when you feel something, you're generally not feeling it here, you're feeling it here, right? And, and I think this is a, a really important 
uh, image to have in mind when you think about what compassion is, is because compassion is like a gut response, an emotional gut response to a, a person or a situation, right? Uh, to, to have compassion, um, as I talked about last week, is, is what today we talk a lot about empathy, and, and compassion is very much empathy, right? Uh, to have empathy is the ability to understand and to identify with the feelings of another person. It's, it's very important. Like, empathy, and we're talking about compassion, is, is an ability to understand and, and to identify with another person, to uh, emotionally, in a sense, enter into their situation. Compassion and empathy are instinct responses that we have, right? Uh, Generally speaking, sometimes we'll describe a person as compassionate. And I do think that people are temperamentally wired, some people more than others, to be compassionate. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it a virtue. But, but there is a way that compassionate people um, who have developed it, their, their instinct response, um, their gut reaction, they don't have to think it through, is to be compassionate, to be merciful, right? You see this in our, our reading. It describes God, right? The, the prodigal leaves takes everything with him, blows his life, and comes back. And before the father has even had a chance to talk with the son or hear his, his confession of repentance, it says the father felt compassion. Same word, felt compassion, and he embraced him. Um, it's the same with Jesus, right? Compassion was an instinctual response of Jesus. When the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless, and if you contrast this with the disciples who see the crowds, they moan. They're like, oh my goodness, are we ever going to get relief from these people who keep following us everywhere? Their instinct response was not compassion. Now, you might be the kind of person that struggles to instinctually uh, feel compassion for others, and that's okay. But we can all grow in compassion. We can all grow in compassion. And and probably the, the biggest way that we can grow in compassion is that is we can train ourselves to really see the full humanity of other people. To really try to, to put ourselves in their shoe, to see that there's more about them than meets the eye. See, when we're hurt, our tendency is to want to demonize, right? To want to make the, the thing that the person did to us to be the defining characteristic of who they are. And, and so what we do is we just sort of, we lock them up, and we don't see anything else, any of the other good things, anything about their context. We become easily, it's easy for us to just have unfeeling and cold hearts, right? When all we see is this, this one little image of them. But when we have compassion, it's, you know, what we do is to, to exercise compassion is to humanize another person to recognize there's more to this person that perhaps I'm seeing. There's more to their story than I understand or know. This is always the truth, and this is what Jesus says, right? I mean, he has deep insight, and he just, and it doesn't just say he had compassion. It says he, they were harassed and helpless. He, he understood something more about the people that were coming to them and what was motivating him. And this is the same for us, is that, that to develop compassion is, is to really um, to try to see people in the fullness, so that people are way more complicated there's way more going on behind the scenes than just meets the eye, than is on the surface. It's true for you. It's also true for them. 
And it's, so when, it, when it's people we know, when it's our, our spouse or our children or our close friends, it's easy for us to exercise compassion because we're like, oh, I, I can kind of see how you got to where you did. And to be compassionate isn't necessarily to approve of people's decisions and what they did. It's not necessarily to whitewash anything, but it is at least to, to put yourself and to understand their motivations. Compassion is something that we can all develop, right? Um, but it's really important. To, to develop compassion, you have to actually get outside of yourself emotionally, right? That's so important. Like, you'll never be a compassionate person if you can't get outside of yourself emotionally. And that's what brings us to the second virtue that's so important, which is humility. Humility. Humility is a, a virtue um, which in the ancient world you will find on no pagan virtue list. And there's lots of virtue lists in the in the Greco-Roman period that had like kindness and patience and long-suffering and things like this. But what you will not find on that list anywhere is humility. <laughs> uh, John Calvin calls uh, humility the foundation of Christian spirituality. The foundation, right? And this is, this is really the whole Christian tradition, spiritual tradition. Um, because humility is a distinctly Christian virtue. And the text that I want to draw your attention to that really gives us the best account of what humility is in the light of who God is, is from Philippians 2, where Paul, he says to the Philippians, he's making a moral admonition to them to be humble. And he says, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I mean, this is incredible. Jesus, in the form of God, God himself embodies this reality of virtue that, that he, he doesn't He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he lowers himself to serve others, to put others ahead of himself. How much more us, right? Humility is such an important virtue to have in relationship with one another. There's nothing that ruins and wrecks relationships like pride, which is the opposite. Now, there is a widespread, I think, misperception of what humility is, that it consists of having a low opinion of yourself or a negative view of yourself. Um, but this is just straight wrong. This is not what true humility is. I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility, I'm just paraphrasing him. But he says that a humble person is not somebody who thinks less of themselves, but somebody who thinks less about themselves. You, you find the distinction here? It's not to be humble is to think, oh man, I'm rotten, or I, I'm not very good, or no, it's just, you're not thinking about yourself. You're self-forgetful. In your interactions with people, you just, you're not really thinking about yourself. See, um, the opposite of being a humble person is to be a self-centered person. And we can be self-centered in all kinds of ways. This is very important. You know, you can be self-centered because you think you're awesome right? <laughs> right. This is how we think about pride. We almost always just think of pride as a person who brags and 
thinks very highly of themselves and their skills and whatever. Um, but you can also be a very self-centered person because of, you have a very low opinion of yourself. And you're constantly thinking about how much of a fail you are or how much you screw up, and you're always talking about it to others. Or you can become a very self-centered person in your pain, where your pain is all-consuming, and it's all you can think about, how you've been hurt by others. See, the essence, the, again, the opposite of humility is not being able to escape the self. It's like you're, all, you're always thinking about yourself. You can't escape. It's like a prison. And, I, and you see the connection here why, why humility is so important when it comes to forgiveness because nothing will make you self-centered. And I know this is very painful to hear, especially if you've been really hurt, but nothing can make, turn you more inward and make you more self-centered than when you've been really hurt by another person because you want that pain. You want to, I mean, it's just so big and you can't stop thinking about it. But it's a prison. <laughs> it's a prison of the self. See, there's, there's times that we don't actually want to let go of the pain. We want, like, there's a way that we could, but we don't. We don't want to move on because, in a sense, to let go of the feeling of, of pain and being injured by this person is like letting them off the hook. It's like letting them go scot-free. <laughs> but the reality is, is the only way out of the self-centeredness that pain brings upon us is humility. It's to be able to just set aside my right to feel hurt. Setting aside my right to feel hurt. This takes humility. It takes myself setting it aside. So humility is essential for the forgiving life at so many different levels. Um, you need humility to just to get outside of your own head, emotionally speaking, in order to empathize with another person. You need, that takes humility. You need humility to be open to the ways that you perhaps might have hurt another person. Most conflicts in our life, very rarely is it one directional, that there's just one perpetrator and one victim. Most of the, 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 the pain and injury that we feel comes out of a relational context in which perhaps we also had some ways that we hurt another person. It takes humility to be able to hear how perhaps we have hurt somebody else without denying the fact that they really have hurt and done us wrong. Humility is a virtue that, that creates in us a kind of emotional, um, relational resiliency. Or we, we like the word grit today. It makes you gritty. Because all the, the hurts and the harms that are just common to relational life and community and marriage and love, all those things, it, it, it gives you a kind of resiliency where you're not so quick to take offense or or um, stew on something. You're quick to, to take responsibility when it's clear you've done the wrong. To be humble is just, I mean, at, at its core, is just to have a right perception of yourself. It's not to think too highly or too lowly, but, but it also, it's just absolutely freeing. To be a humble person is to be freed in relationship to others. As you interact with them, you're not thinking, what, do I, what can I get out of this relationship, or what's interesting to this, about me to this, this person? Will they, think, will they think about me? Will they like me? You know, like we, we often obsess at, and we go back and replay conversations and we re-examine ourselves. And I think the humble person is just like, you know what? In the true sense of the word, it's just being yourself. Realizing you're a sinner, you mess up. Okay, God's grace is bigger. Humility allows us a quick recovery in relationships when wrongs have occurred and forgiveness needs to 
be extended. Now, closely related to humility is this next virtue, gentleness. Gentleness and, and humility are often paired together. I often like to speak of the virtues with different categories. So compassion is like an emotion virtue. Humility and gentleness, I call them style virtues. Style virtues is like how we wear the self, how we relate to ourselves. So humility is how I, I perceive myself, and gentleness has to do with how I use power. Gentleness has to do with power, um, my personal power. We often think of, again, misperceived perception of gentleness or meekness is the other word that's used as a synonym, as, as you know, uh, voluntary weakness or being mousy and not being too pushy. And that's, that's just not, again, that's not the right understanding of gentleness. Gentleness is, is actually about how we use our power for the sake of other people's good. How we use power for, to, to, to seek flourishing in another. How we use power for the sake of connection. Now, I've preached many sermons on gentleness. I encourage you to go back and listen to them if you're interested. But the one, just one quick or one focus for this forgiveness is the way that how important it is to have the virtue of gentleness in, in the context of forgiveness in terms of how we speak to one another. The tongue is a powerful thing. As James says, the tongue can set the world on fire. That's what James says. He says people burn down their whole lives because of things they've said. And we know this is true, right? The tongue is so powerful to build up and to tear down. And gentleness is such an important virtue because it, it, it teaches us how to, how, to, how to control our tongues, how to speak truth, even difficult truth, even confrontational truth, without seeking to punish, without seeking to hurt. Um, being gentle often just means I don't speak. <laughs> it's like I, I, I recognize that, you know, what I would have to say in this situation would not lead to this person's understanding the truth, embracing the truth, or be building up to them, and so I don't say it. We often think that we, we should always speak the truth and, like, we should always say it how it is. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. You know, from the heart <laughs> flows all kinds of things. We think being true to ourselves, when, as sinners, like we need to restrain ourselves in what we say because the things we think in our head are not always what is true and what is good. Genos is, is the exercise of our personal power, but it, but it always has an exercise of power with vulnerability. That's so key. See, when we have power, and I mean, you might think you don't have power, but you all have power. And it may not go very far, you know, but when we have power, we, we try to protect ourselves when we feel threatened or we feel hurt. So we, we become defensive, we build up walls, or we retaliate with harsh words, we attack, right? But, but gentleness in speech is to, is to use words to connect with others, to remain vulnerable. And that's how Jesus always, he, Jesus described his ministry as one of gentleness. He never forsook his power but he never used his power to defend himself or to build an emotional wall. He remained connected and was willing to suffer to stay connected. And so that's what it means to be gentle. The proverb 
says that through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. That brings us to the last virtue here, which is patience. Um, Patience is a capacity to accept and tolerate discomfort, delay, um, suffering without getting angry and upset. That's what patience is. Patience is a capacity to tolerate and to endure suffering, discomfort, delay without getting angry or upset. The patient person dwells gladly in a moment and endures the discomfort without complaining or seeking to manipulate the outcome of a situation. And so, what kind of a virtue is patience? Patience is a strength virtue. Patience is like, it's like the beams of love in a house, hold of love. It's like a girder, right? You, you, it's, like you, um, it's like holding a pose, right? Over time, you know, like an exercise pose where, uh, you know, your, your muscles are straining, but you need to hold that pose to hold up the building. That's what patience is, right? Um, without patience, we can become manipulative in our relationships to kind of get the outcome we want. Without patience, we can also become prone to outbursts of anger and frustration. Patience is so important for forgiveness and a life of forgiveness. Um, because rarely do other people process, communicate, conflict at the same rate that we do and in the same ways that we do. You know, it's very often I, I talk with couples about different things in marriage, and it's very often the case that as couples, we process conflict in very different ways. One person wants to deal with it right away, and the other person needs time. They're not ready to talk about it, right? You need patience. We need patience with one another. Forgiveness isn't like a switch. You can just flip it. It's not a lever you can pull. It's a process. It takes time. And the bigger the the harm, the more the time you need. Paul talks about patience and um, says he starts his great hymn on love. He says, love is patient. Love is patient. It doesn't rush things. It waits on the other. It gives space for growth and change. See, we live in a non-demand culture in which actually impatience is a virtue And we're always seeking to find ways in which we can create greater efficiencies and greater productivity and move things along more quickly. But that's not how life works with relationships. That's not how people work. That's not how we're wired. It takes time. People take time. Love takes time. Imagine you're on a hiking trip with your your family and you have one of the little ones that are with you and you're, you're, you're walking along, but the little one can't keep up. What do you do? Do you just keep moving forward and leave the three or four year old back there? No. You wait for him. Why? He's just a little kid. And so you accommodate yourself. That's what patience is. That's what love is. Now, it is good for us to reflect on these virtues and to always be measuring our lives against them and trying to um, embrace the truth, their truth, for our relationships and love and I just want to remind you that virtues are practices. Or, you know, I use this imagery of an exercise that you do. You know, when you're doing physical therapy, you do it over and over again in sets. And the virtues are very much like this. They're things that you have to practice. And over time, though, that they, they kind of change you and who you are. But they're not instantaneous. They have to be cultivated over time. But the other thing, too, is it's not like 
you know, working out in your base room, basement, you know, doing your own thing. The virtues are, are things that are practiced in community with one another. They're practiced in community. We do them together. Now, I want you also to see one last thing in close. That not only do these virtues, are these virtues essential for connecting with one another, they're essential for connecting with God. Paul's great insight into this passage here on the virtues is that pursuing them is actually how we pursue Christ. Pursuing the virtues is how we pursue Christ, how we grow in our union with Christ. The whole text, if, if, I were to, if we had read the whole thing, you see it's a, it's, a, it's a text that's about union with Christ. And our translation says, put on these virtues. And, you know, you think about putting on clothing, but uh, I think perhaps a better translation is clothe yourself with, right? And what are you clothing yourselves with when you put on these virtues? You're clothing yourself with the person of Jesus Christ, that's what you're doing. You're putting on him. That's, that's what it means, right? And so when, when you think about the practice of these virtues in your life, don't think of these in separation from this, this larger relationship you have with God and Jesus Christ. And to be in Christ means that you have access to his wardrobe closet. Think about Jesus' wardrobe closet. In that closet are all these garments, love, joy, peace, humility, patience, gentleness, compassion. Those are in his closet and because of union with Christ, you have access to those garments. And the way you grow close and deeper union with him is you put them on. But know this too. Remember in Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit? It's the same virtues. It's the same virtues. And so here's the beautiful thing about being in Christ. is like we've got access to the closet, everything in his closet, and we have the Spirit that teaches us how to wear them. The Spirit teaches us how to wear love and gentleness and humility and patience and compassion. It's not just you on your own. There's, there's, there's something that God is doing in us as we grow in deeper union with one another and with Him. And in doing that, we continue the story of God's love that He called us to and created us for. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks that we do have access in Jesus Christ to all these virtues, all these beautiful uh, ways of being with one another and being with you. And Lord, uh, practicing these things can be very painful. Realizing that we fall short of them um, is very painful. And yet we do pray, God, that you would assure us of our forgiveness in you and that this uh, would empower us, Lord, to forgive one another. So again, we just pray, Lord, make us a forgiving people with forgiving lives, and most important, that we would know that you are, you are like the Father in that, the parable that we read today, that you see us far off, even before we have a chance to say, I'm sorry, you see us, and your heart goes out to us, and you want to embrace us. That is your heart, Lord. And so give us the same kind of heart towards one another. In the name of Jesus, amen.